Thanks so much, Noah. Hi, everyone. My name is Amy Anthony. I'm the supervising attorney of the Housing and Appeals Units at the Volunteer Lawyers Project. Um, we're really excited to have you all here with us today. Um, and the presentation today is going to be um, a basic training on eviction defense, um, and then also um, some information about how to get involved, how to volunteer with us, um, because the need right now is greater than ever, um, because we are facing a, a major housing crisis. Um, so here with me today are our staff attorneys, Rochelle Jones, Katie Lambing, and Lynn Wang. And um, we also have our pro bono manager, Amelia Andres, with us. Um, and I'll pass it over to Amelia now to tell you a little bit more about VLP. Hi, everyone. My name is Amelia Andres, and I am the pro bono manager here at VLP. So I'll start today's presentation with um, a little bit more on VLP and who we are. We can go to the next slide. So VLP, we are a civil legal aid organization that has been providing services to the greater Boston area for over 40 years. We started as a pilot project with the Boston Bar Association to see um, for all of the eligible clients out there, were there enough legal aid resources? The answer was no and has continued to be a way for us to close the gap between legal aid eligible clients and legal aid resources is to work with the private bar. And that is what VLP's model is. We are a pro bono project. And the main focus volunteer lawyers project is train and mentor private attorneys to be able to do pro bono work with us. Very small staff, we have eight full-time and two part-time staff attorneys. All of the cases that we work on are civil cases. So all of the civil legal aid that you can think of except for immigration, and that is due to our funding. So even though this is a housing uh, training, we still are, we have uh, many other units um, that we work in. Um, so we have family law and guardianship, bankruptcy, consumer appeals, wills, and employment. Um, so if you're also interested in those units, please let me know. But our busiest and biggest units are our housing and family law units. Um, so we provide mentorship and guidance to all of our pro bono attorneys, and we have all of our staff attorneys that are well-versed and ready to support pro bonos. And if we go to, um, so a little bit more on the clients that we serve. Um, so all of our uh, clients, they must meet uh, three criteria. Um, so the first is they income, um, and that is based on their income and their assets. Um, so, for VLP, uh, low income is defined as being 200% um, below the federal poverty guidelines. Um, and even though um, Boston is a higher cost of living city, um, it doesn't make them more, our clients, it doesn't make them more eligible um, for our services. So those federal poverty guidelines are applied to all states equally, except for Alaska and Hawaii. And most of the clients that we see um, fall in between um, 125 and 150% below the federal poverty guidelines. And the second thing um, that uh, our clients must meet is um, eligibility. So um, 
we, because of our funding, we have to ask for their status. So they must be citizens or green card holders or fall within um, an exception category, um, such as an asylee or here on an agricultural visa. Um, and then the third thing is um, all of our clients must meet our case priorities. Um, so we have a call center um, early, our Eastern Region Legal Intake, um, and to over 13,000 people every year, and really have their finger on what our needs are. And each year our board votes on these priorities um, and determines um, uh, what areas of law that we'll continue to work in. And so um, in order for our client um, to uh, have this with us, they must um, be, and that's something that we do um, before it gets all the way to the pro bono stage. So um, I will turn it over to Amy, who will talk a little bit more on the importance of volunteering. Um, but before I do, um, just know that you'll receive an email after this training all of our links and um, all of the required resources um, that are covered today um, for you to sign up for future clinics. Thank you, Amelia. Um, so as Amelia mentioned, um, VLP's model is a pro bono model. Um, and we really rely on that in the housing unit where there are there's so much need, there are so many cases um, and far more cases than we can handle just on our own as attorneys, um, staff attorneys. Um, so the SJC actually addressed um, some of the challenges and value of um, having attorneys in housing court recently in a case called Ajardi. Um, so as you can read in this quote, um, they talk about the complex challenges that the unrepresented litigants face. Um, and there is this stark difference in the number of tenants that are represented versus landlords that are represented. Um, in the Ajardi case, they noted that 92.4% of housing court defendants were unrepresented. Um, some more recent statistics are showing an even higher number. It's, it seems sometimes more like 97% of tenants are unrepresented. Um, whereas in contrast, 70% uh, or more of uh, plaintiff landlords are represented. Um, so there is this huge um, power gap that we see in and um, you know, we really need attorneys to help narrow that gap. Um, they um, also talked about just the complexity of summary process cases. There are so many statutes, so many rules. Um, it's very complicated. Um, and it really is a, an incredibly um, challenging web for unrepresented litigants to navigate on their own. Um, they are, uh, you know, our clients are coming to us at a time of crisis, they're stressed, um, you know, they're facing losing their housing, um, and having to navigate not only the stress that they're dealing with, but also um, these really complicated court rules and court cases um, is just so unbelievably challenging if you're not an attorney. Um, so I know that sometimes our volunteers sort of think, well, I'm not a housing attorney. I don't, you know, I'm not a housing expert. How much help can I really provide? Um, but we are here to tell you that you have so much value to our clients. Um, not only can you guide and reassure them, you know, often what they need is to someone to just listen to them, to be an ear, um, to give validation to what they're going through, um, but also to help give voice to their issues. Um, you know, again, when they are coming to court, they're in a time of crisis. It's 
it's stressful, um, and they can't always express uh, clearly, you know, what the issues in their case are. Um, and that's where you all come in, and our volunteers do a really great job um, at advocating for our clients. Um, you're also all trained attorneys, even though you may not be housing specialists. Um, so you, you know, have been trained to issue spot, um, identify legal rights, um, and again, advocate against them or, or for them um, against uh, more experienced attorneys um, who are, you know, have been doing this law for a long time. Um, you can also present evidence clearly and meaningfully. Um, and it's really just about helping these low income pro se litigants who don't have that same training or experience uh, to protect their rights in court. Um, so we really hope that, um, that you all sign up to join um, and we are always there to support you um, for any volunteer opportunity that we offer. There's always a staff attorney who's uh, available to provide whatever level of mentoring and support that you need. Um, we're happy to walk you through the law. So um, this training is not the end. Uh, you know, we are always there in the future as well. Um, and now I'm gonna hand it over to Rochelle um, and she's gonna start the substantive part of the training. Hello everyone, my name is Rochelle Jones and I am a staff in the housing, staff attorney in the housing department in at Volunteer Lawyers Project. Um, so I'm gonna begin with our training today. So the eviction defense basics. Um, so in Gold's Rule in Massachusetts is that a landlord may not evict a tenant without first obtaining a court order. Um, you know, oftentimes you'll hear tenants are like, oh, I received this notice from my landlord. I'm fearful I'm going to be evicted, but a landlord cannot evict a tenant without first going to court and going through the proper steps. Any lease that says that a landlord can evict a tenant without going to court is illegal. So what is a tenancy exactly? Um, a landlord owns the premises and the premises can be anything from an apartment building, a multifamily unit where the landlord also resides or just a single family home. The landlord intends for the tenant to have possession of the property um, for some period of time in exchange for rent. And this will usually be specified in the lease. So there are different types of tenancies. The first one is the standard lease in which most of us are familiar with. Um, the lease is signed, it has a start date and an end date. The lease should also state the time frame to terminate the tenancy. Um, and then any incidents which may result in a lease violation and eviction. So the tenant should be aware of what actions or anything they do can cause the lease um, to fail. The rent is due on a specific date, usually between the first and the fifth of the month. Tenant's possession will end at a specific time in this type of lease. The second kind of lease we have is a tenancy at will, which is like probably the second most popular lease. It's a month to month tenancy. There's no set date for the tenancy to end default tenancy when there is no lease um, on the table. Lease expires and the landlord continues or the landlord continues to accept the rent. In a tenancy at will, a 14-day notice to quit for non-payment will apply. Otherwise, a notice period is 30 days or a full rental period, whichever is longer. So there are three types of evictions. Non-payment of rent, which is exactly what it says. The tenant has failed to pay the landlord rent. Um, and here the tenant can raise counterclaims against the rent claimed. Usually the tenant may, for example, be withholding rent due to a conditions in the unit, defective conditions. Um, in this case, if the tenant loses, there's no law saying that the court should consider a stay of execution, which we'll get into a little more later. 
Um, there's also the cause eviction. And so this is typically where the tenant has committed some type of lease violation. Um, there are no counterclaims in this case and the law, no law saying that the court should consider a stay of ex execution. Some affirmative defenses include a reasonable accommodation or retaliation. Um, an example of a cause eviction for cases where a tenant may have violated the lease by you know, disrupting the quiet enjoyment of other residents on the property or any damage to the unit, or if it's like a building or property management situation, like verbal abuse to staff members or something of that sort. Um, in a no-fault case, the tenant can bring counterclaims, and if the tenant loses, the law says the court should consider a stay of execution to give the tenant just time to relocate. No-fault cases are typically where the lease has just expired and the landlord decides not to renew the lease of some sort. Okay, so this is the most important step. In order to terminate a tenancy, a landlord must properly terminate the tenancy with written notice um, before beginning any eviction procedures in court. Um, so the notice is called the notice to quit. It will identify the tenants, list them by name. Sometimes it's the head of household and then it says any other household members. Um, the address of the premises, the termination date, rent, um, any rent that's unpaid or due, and any unequivocal termination language that puts the, the tenant on notice as to why their case is being evicted. Um, there are three types of notice to quits. There's the 14 day, like we said, for non-payment of rent, um, a lease or, subs or some subsidy program may require more notice, but never less than 14 days. Um, there's a 30 day notice to quit for any reason other than non-payment. So that's the no fault or the fault eviction. If there is a lease, it should specify the notice required. At least can be terminated for breach. It may also provide procedures if one of the parties chooses not to renew. Um, this information is very helpful and it's very specific because in order for us to, for example, later on, maybe file a motion to dismiss, it's going to see whether or not the landlord, you know, complied with the 14-day notice or the 30-day notice, depending on the eviction type. And here's just an example um, of a 30-day notice to quit. As you can see, it has the date, it has a tenant's name, um, the address, also specifies what kind of tenancy this is as a tenancy at will. It also goes on to say, list the landlord's rights um, and is signed by the landlord or their attorney. There's also a proof of delivery and that just shows how the landlord um, provided the notice to quit to the tenant. Okay, so what happens when the notice to quit has expired? And I do want to be clear that a notice to quit generally say you have, like we said, 14 days or 30 days to vacate the premises. This doesn't exactly mean that the tenant has to be out within those exact 14 or 30 days. Um, they still have some time because again, the landlord can only bring an eviction case when um, they go to court. So if the tenant doesn't move out by the end of that notice time, the landlord may file the case in district court or housing court to seek permission from the court to actually remove the tenant. Um, a tenant can also, if the case is brought in district court, a tenant can also bring the case to housing court. Um, the landlord may not begin the summary process eviction until the notice period has fully expired. So whether that's the 14 days or the 30 days, nothing less. Um, the landlord be begins the case by serving and then filing a summons and complaint. Um, the reasons for eviction identified in the notice to quit must match the summons and complaint. Okay, and so this is a little, also a little segue into subsidized housing. Um, when we take on cases, we have to first ask the tenant, you know, simple questions, whether it's whether they live in a private home, private housing, subsidized housing, 
Um, and that varies and different things will come to play with the type of housing the tenant has. Um, so there are various types of housing-based governmental assistance programs. Most popular is most likely the Section 8 program. It's a federal program. Um, under Section 8, there's a tenant-based voucher. Um, that just means a tenant can essentially carry their voucher to different units, different properties, also the project-based voucher, which that does not is not transferable and usually just applies to like one apartment complex or sort. And there's also um, low-income housing tax credit or public housing assistance. Sometimes a tenant may not even know which assistance or subsidy they have. Um, and so it just may require a little more digging in. And also to be clear that the subsidized housing is usually through some type of housing authority, um, the most popular Boston Housing Authority. There's also Metro Housing Boston and other additional towns in, um, in Massachusetts have their own housing authorities such as like Chelsea or Cambridge. Um, so these programs usually charge rent based on the household's income, um, which is typically 30% of their gross income. It's usually the, the standard. Um, tenants in subsidized housing must complete an annual recertification for their rent for their rent and must also report any changes in income during the year. Um, so they have to report their income changes as well as any household composition changes as well. Most commonly, tenants may be terminated for failure to recertify or adequately report their income. However, the landlord must follow certain procedures to properly terminate this tenancy. For example, one example is just if a if a tenant does have a Section 8 voucher or so forth, the landlord has to inform the housing authority that administered that voucher and not just the landlord, I'm not just the tenant, I'm sorry. So like I said, Section 8 is one of the most common subsidized housing programs. Um, an, owner, an owner may only terminate the tenancy because of serious or repeated violations of the lease, violation of federal, state, or local law that imposes obligations on the tenant in connection with the occupancy criminal activity or alcohol abuse or other good cause attributable to the family. Um, it's also clear that the landlord will terminate the tenancy. However, the housing authority can also terminate the actual Section 8 voucher, the subsidy. Um, so after the first year, tenancy may be terminated for other good cause, such as a business or family release reason. And like the slide says, there are also many, many rules when it comes to Section 8 and subsidy evictions. And so the eviction process in Massachusetts is called summary process. Um, you'll see this actually in like the court docket as has an SP, which stands for summary process. Um, in Massachusetts, a tenant can win an eviction case. Um, winning an eviction case can either mean possession or money damages from the landlord, depending on the situation. Um, if the landlord fails to bring the case properly, for example, doesn't follow a rule or law, give the proper um, time the notice to quit, or if under certain circumstances, the landlord fails to uphold his or her duty to the tenant. And that, for example, is just like conditions in the unit if, if the landlord is responsible for those conditions. Um, the tenant can win the right to stay in the apartment, we just call that possession, or money damages from the landlord. Okay, so this is a summons and complaint. This is what the landlord has to file in court after the notice to quit period has expired. So after the tenancy has been properly terminated, the landlord may serve the tenant with a summons and complaint. The summons and complaint must be served by a sheriff, by a sheriff or constable who is authorized by law to serve court papers. The summons and complaint tells you the reason for the eviction. And again, that has to match the notice to quit. The court where the case will be filed um, whether that's the Eastern Housing Court, Southwest Housing Court, um, 
by what date and where the tenant's response should be sent um, to the landlord or if the landlord is represented to an attorney. And here's a sample of the summons and complaint. Um, like I said, it'll list the, the court, um, the information for the landlord's address, the tenant's address. Um, at the bottom here in the small print, which is sometimes difficult for tenants you know, to read and things like that. Also for attorneys, but that's why it's great for us to have attorneys represent tenants. But it just explains um, your rights. Um, and then the same thing for the landlords, it gives them a notice. This, like I said, has to be um, served by a constable. And again, this just lists all the details and the fee for that service, um, which is the court fees. Um, so like with everything else, um, you know, housing court has endured some changes during the pandemic. Um, previously, the summons and complaint included the tenant's trial date and answer deadline. Um, the housing court standing order 620 is just um, a rule the housing court has came up with, established a two-tier system for all their eviction cases. Um, tier one is a mediation. And so in this mediation, that's usually the first time the parties can come together and just discuss the case, whether um, see if an agreement can be made or and so forth. Um, and this is also done on Zoom with a housing court specialist as the mediator. The housing court specialist remains pretty neutral to both sides. Um, and like I said, the mediation is the first time the parties come together. You can continue the mediation a few times as long as both parties agree. And that just means that we're holding off on the next um, tier two event just for the parties to come to an agreement or um, assert any other reasonable accommodation requests or so forth. So forth. Um, tier two is a trial or the next, it's usually just the next point in the case where most likely it'll be in front of a judge and not a housing specialist. Um, district court also uses the, the two tier system in the first tier is, is a case management conference instead of a mediation. Okay, so answer and discovery. Answer and discovery is very important as this is where the tenant is essentially responding to the landlord in writing. Um, in the answer, the tenant is asserting any counterclaims they may have against the, the landlord. Um, they're also asserting any defenses they have to any of the claims. Um, they can also request discovery, as we know, that's just you know getting more information from the other side, um, just to see what they have. And this is usually, this must be filed with the court um, three days before the date of the first, that's that first mediation. Um, and most importantly, the answer is also the tenant's opportunity to make a jury demand, um, as this essentially can prolong the time for the court to assemble a jury. If the, if the answer is late or the tenant fails to assert a jury demand, it'll most likely go before a judge, which is a bench trial, and those are just being, you know, scheduled a little more quickly. And, a jury demand essentially just gives the tenant more, more opportunity to fight their case or perhaps um, enter into an agreement. Um, and this is just what it looks like. This is a pre-made form on MADE. Um, so again, it just um, you list some basic facts, indicate why the, if the tenancy was not properly terminated. Also list the law and citations for that information. Um, and again, like I said, you can also assert counterclaims, um, defenses in your jury demand. Um, and right now we'll take it over to my colleague, Lynn Wang, and she's going to go into tenants defenses and counterclaims.
Thank you, Rochelle. All right, so I'm just going to be kind of quickly going over um, the defenses and counterclaims that you can make, uh, you know, when, when assisting a tenant. Um, so the first one is the breach of warranty of habitability. So this is essentially a um, a claim where you can make uh, regarding the conditions of the apartment, so cockroach infestations, issues with plumbing, leaks, that kind of thing. These things will kind of impact you know, the livability of the apartment and can also become a defense. Um, but uh, before I get a little bit further into that, um, there are these defenses are only applicable in no fault or non-payment cases. So essentially um, in Massachusetts, when you assert these kinds of claims or defenses, you can actually um, win possession back as a tenant. So, and you know, this is not applicable in fault cases. You know, fault cases are more about violations of the lease. But if it's a no fault case where a landlord might be terminating just because it's the end of the lease term, or you know, in non-payment cases, um, the tenants have the opportunity to bring these claims, and they can, if their if their monetary damages outweigh the landlord's claims, they can win possession back in addition to monetary damages. So one of those is the breach of warranty of habitability. Um, I once had a client who had a raccoon infestation. Uh, there were raccoons, you know, in the walls. You could hear them at night. Uh, you know, in addition to a whole bunch of other kind of issues with the apartment, she texted the landlord, um, and the landlord responded, and he said, you know, if I wanted to read a novel, I would have read Gone with the Wind. And then when she brought up the raccoon issue specifically, the landlord said, and I quote, "Raccoons make good pets." So. That was a uh, that was a you know text conversation. We had it in writing, um, and we got a very good settlement out of it. Um, so you know this is just kind of some examples of claims or defenses that you can make. Um, another one of the claims or counter counterclaims is the breach of quiet enjoyment. Um, in some situations, you know, breach of warranty of habitability can be so severe and so serious that it also rises to the level of breach of quiet enjoyment. But this is kind of like a much broader claim that you can make um, about the landlord or, you know, other tenants or, or the landlord failing to, uh, failing to, you know, control the situation. Uh, but, you know, quiet enjoyment would be situations like the landlord entering the apartment uh, without permission, without giving 24 hours reasonable notice, um, you know, situations like that, or, you know, continually harassing the client, um, you know, and, and these are these are claims that you can assert um, in these in these cases. And we're going to go on and talk a little bit more about other defenses. Um, so uh, the next one I'm going to talk about is the security deposit law. So in Massachusetts, this law is it's a strict liability law. The landlord is supposed to and required to take your security deposit, put it in a bank account, let you know, you know, where that bank is, what your bank account, um, I think what your bank account number is, how much interest you're getting. Every year, the landlord is supposed to take that interest on that security deposit and give it back to you in some form. Um, and they really have to kind of handle these um, security deposits properly, because if they don't, you know, even if they didn't know or weren't aware of what they had to do. This is a it's a really powerful defense and claim that you can raise uh, on behalf of a tenant, especially if the tenant, you know, if if they have non-payment claims, right? Then um, the the security deposit law claim is is a trouble damages claim, and so it can um, it can be really powerful in ensuring that the time that the tenant stays in possession. 
And finally, um, one of the really big and kind of broad um, counterclaims that you can make is the 93A claim for unfair and deceptive practices. You know, and this is a really powerful statute generally not you know just for landlord tenant law but also in contracts also in kind of other areas um but you know specifically in housing cases um this can be you know applied pretty broadly in terms of this the landlord uh if you don't have a lease with your landlord the landlord starts charging you late fees um starts charging you you know attorney's fees um or you know if they have um you know and these unfair and deceptive practices can also include situations where the, the apartment does not is not in working or functioning condition, um, but there's you know there's just kind of a lot of issues um, in unfair practices that landlords might possibly engage in, and this can be a vehicle for for you to you know try to get the client um, additional monetary damages as well as keeping them in their residence. Um, so now I'm going to kind of go into all other defenses. These are applicable in basically any situation, um, and so it includes fault situations. So the first one is um, notice to quit defects, um, and so you know these are these are really technical defenses, um, and this is why it's so important to have an attorney who can go over these things with the tenant because these are issues that tenants themselves are not really aware of. Um, so, for example, in the notice to quit, if the landlord doesn't terminate the tenancy properly, then, you know, you can file a motion to dismiss or for summary judgment. So an example of that might be um, if the notice to quit doesn't properly state the, the period in which you have to leave. So, you know, if they give you a 14-day notice, which is applicable for non-payment cases, but, you know, if they give you a 14-day notice... Um, for something that requires a 30-day notice, that would be a defect in the notice to quit. And at that point, the case would be dismissed. The landlord would have to start over and give the tenant another notice to quit if they wish to proceed. Um, there's other situations where, um, as Rochelle mentioned, um, if, the, if the tenant has Section 8, the landlord fails to serve the, the housing authority that's administering the voucher as well as the tenant, that would be grounds for dismissal as well. So there's a lot of kind of like things to look out for um, that you know aren't necessarily intuitive, but can be really powerful because you don't even need to get to the merits of the case in order to be able to dismiss that case. Um, so another you know situation would be if the case isn't filed properly. Um, so for example, you know again kind of referencing the notice to quit. Um, if the notice to quit gives the tenant 30 days and the landlord files you know 20 days later, that might be a situation where again the case is not properly filed. The case is not ripe yet. For, um, for enforcement. But you know, these are all kinds of situations to look out for when you're looking at the notice to quit as well as the summons and complaint. And some other defenses um, are you know, issues of retaliation. So you know, there, there is a statute um, that you know, highlights the, the grounds for, um, for a tenant to, to bring this retaliation defense. Um, so there are a number of enumerated protective that protected activities. So for example, if the client um, has made a report to housing inspection and you know housing inspection comes out, they cite the landlord for violations, and then all of a sudden the tenant gets a notice to quit. That would be a protected activity, right? And that would be a situation where um, if the tenant raises it, it creates a rebuttable presumption and the landlord then has to be the one to prove that it's not retaliation. Um, and finally, um, there's the uh, discrimination or reasonable accommodation. 
So, you know, for example, again, if an eviction is discriminating against somebody on the basis of their um, of their race, their, set, their sex, their orientation, um, their um, national origin, et cetera, et cetera, or other situations where it might be um, an issue uh, that relates to disability. And we'll get into that in the next slide. We'll, we'll get to that in the next slide. Um, we'll come back to that. Okay, so um, another issue, uh, a defense that you might raise is that there is no material lease violation that is shown. So for example, um, you know, sometimes there may be technical violations of a lease. So a lease that says you can only have overnight guests for up to seven days, you have an overnight guest for eight days, you know, that might not be a material violation. Technically, maybe the lease was, the, the lease was breached, but, you know, is it really something that rises to the level where somebody should be evicted for that? You know, and these are kind of situations where, um, you know, again, the, 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 the tenants that you're serving are not very familiar with these defenses. And these are really good things to look at um, to be able to argue and to, uh, to help them you know, stay in their homes. Um, and finally, one of, the, one of the principles of equity arguments um, is avoidance of forfeiture. Essentially, you know, the, the argument is we really don't want to be kicking people out of their homes, especially right now, especially with you know COVID, especially with everything, um, you know, there's a housing crisis, um, and you know, especially with the rising real estate prices, um, there are going to be a lot of landlords who are thinking, you know, that they have other, they have other tenants who might be paying additional rent uh, that might be might be more lucrative, and so these are really just, you know, it's it's a really big need right now. Um, and it's really important um, for, for tenants to have access to people who can assist them. Okay, so I'm going to now talk about reasonable accommodation. So I mentioned disability earlier. Um, and essentially, uh, there are situations where uh, a person might be able to request a reasonable accommodation for a disability. This could be physical or this could be mental. Um, this is kind of like a broad definition. It doesn't really have to be, they have to be diagnosed with a disability and, you know, fall under the social security disability guidelines. But, um, you know, I've had situations where a client um, entered into a, uh, an agreement um, agreeing to pay rent on time, but, uh, you know, she had a son who had schizophrenia and he had, he ended up in the hospital um, and, you know, while she was taking care of him, she just completely forgot to pay the rent. So that, that might be a situation where a reasonable accommodation uh, would be asked for. Or an, um, another situation that I had was a client who had lupus and she had previously had, you know, kind of a designated parking space. Um, and then, you know, the parking space was taken away for unknown reasons. And, you know, we asked for a reasonable accommodation um, on her behalf because the client, you know, had a really hard time finding additional parking. She had a really hard time getting from new parking parking that was, you know, a lot farther away back to her apartment. And she had also been putting off some really necessary knee and hip surgeries because of this issue, because she wasn't sure that she would, she was going to be able to, you know, have parking where she could quickly get from her car back to her apartment. Um, so these, um, these are kind of examples of reasonable accommodations. Um, when you're requesting a, re a reasonable accommodation, 
Um, the disability does have to be related to the reason why the tenant couldn't meet the tenancy obligations. This is called the nexus. Um, but in the uh, in the request, it's you know part of the request could just be you know if this person if this person um, had had an issue or ran into um, you know, or became hospitalized for something, um, then the reasonable accommodation might be to preserve the tenancy um, and to allow them to stay. Um, so once this request is made, then it is up to the landlord to show that this is uh, a burden to them or that it, um, it or that it like alters the nature of the program. So for example, if there's a program that um, is specifically meant to serve veterans, um, and then there's a reasonable accommodation to allow somebody else who might not be a veteran to, to live with the, with the person. Um, I'm, I don't know, I'm just making this, this kind of particular request up, but these are kind of situations where the, um, where the program you know, may be able to show that it is burdensome, but for the most part, you know, I think it is really important to try to make those, um, try to make those requests, especially because um, a lot of times the tenants that you're serving, again, you know, they have, um, they have a lot of kind of impediments to being able to really, truly assert their claims in, in court and in front of a judge, especially because they're not familiar with the process. And, um, you know, as, as a note, uh, you know, even if uh, you haven't asserted or requested a reasonable accommodation when you are filing the answer in discovery, um, it can still be requested uh, during trial. And it can also be requested outside of cause evictions so that someone, a disabled tenant, can have an equal opportunity to enjoy the benefits of the tenancy. So, you know, even if there's not an eviction filed, you know, one of the most common examples might be if somebody is in a wheelchair and, you know, they have, um, there's, there's no ramp, that might be a, you know, a situation to request a reasonable accommodation. Okay, so now I'm gonna talk a little bit more about mediation negotiation. As Rochelle mentioned earlier, we are now kind of in a situation where we have tier one negotiations or mediations first before going on to trial. Um, these are scheduled over Zoom. And um, this is also another really great opportunity to get involved because um, you, know, you are advocating on behalf of the client. Um, and a lot of times, you know, the client does feel intimidated or they may be you know, they may be thinking about entering into an agreement that is not really to their interest. They may be agreeing to vacate by the end of the month, which is in two weeks. And, you know, they just don't feel like they would have a good chance of appearing in front of a judge and winning their trial, or they're just not aware, you know, or not aware of how, um, how they could possibly raise defenses. So, and um, uh, mediation also is also really important, being able to assist a client during mediation um, especially because these mediations, oftentimes landlord attorneys, because they go to court all the time, they have these boilerplate mediation agreements, and a lot of them are very restrictive. A lot of them might waive particular rights that the client has who, uh, and, you know, they're not aware of, or it might be something where, you know, a non-payment case where a client has entered into an agreement and they've agreed um, to all these other restrictions, you know, they've agreed that uh, you know they're they're not going to have their boyfriend over you know something that's kind of outside the scope something that's really broad um, that they could suddenly all of a sudden be opened up um, for like an eviction could be brought um, even though they've never received a notice to quit even though they've never received the proper kind of um, the procedures beforehand so um, these are kind of situations to look out for if you're assisting 
a client in mediation. And uh, we're also going to be hosting a kind of larger, more in-depth mediation training next week. Um, so we highly encourage you to sign up for that if you're interested as well. Um, and before, okay, so, oh, sorry. Um, I was going to say there was one question that came in um, from Mason that I just wanted to um, address. Um, so his question is, do you have a rough sense of what percent of um, notices to quit or summons are defective in some way, um, improper delivery service, failure to make required disclosures, disclosures et cetera? Um, like, is this really a common defense or one that we'll only see once in a blue moon? Um, so I, I don't know that I can give you a rough percent, but um, I will say that these um, types of defects are not at all uncommon. Um, so we address these a lot. Um, and whenever we first get a case, we do a pretty um, detailed review of both the notice to quit and the summons and complaint um, to look for those kinds of defects. Um, and it's a really careful review, making sure sort of like the address is correct, the certificate of service is correct, um, that the case was filed, you know, um, by the date that it should have been, um, wow. that the reasons match, you know, we, we sort of go through all of these things when we're reviewing. Um, and um, we also have a huge library of form um, motions to dismiss that address sort of like every possible defect that you might find. Um, so this is something that we deal with um, quite frequently. Um, okay, so now I'm just going to quickly kind of go over a summary process trial. This is typically going to be a bench trial um, unless the tenant asks for uh, a jury trial. Um, so, you know, in these situations, the tenant may have to appear before a judge without a lawyer, but, you know, what you should advise them is that they don't have to use specific language. You can just kind of walk them through uh, what the issues are, what the facts are, the arguments that they should be making that are important to their case. Um, and, you know, the landlord as the plaintiff presents their case first um, and, um, you know, the admissible, any admissible evidence when to the record. Um, and then after the plaintiff goes, the tenant, defendant, uh, then present their case. Um, and, you know, all witnesses have the opportunity or, or all, both, both parties have the opportunity to cross-examine witnesses. Um, so typically also after the trial, the judge is unlikely to render an on-the-spot decision. They just take the matter under advisement and then the written decision will be sent in the mail later. Um, okay. Um, okay, I think, so I, I don't know if there are any issues with my audio. Happy to go back. Okay. Um, is, is this better? Alright, so uh, now I'm just going to quickly go into what happens trial after the court mails decision to the parties, then there are uh, 10 days from the date of the decision to appeal. Um, and the tenant can also seek the state of, ex of execution in, um, in some cases. So on the 11th day uh, after, if the parties don't appeal the decision or get a stay, then the execution is gonna be sent out uh, or available for the landlord to pick up 
and um, the, the sheriff or constable will serve that on the tenant. Um, so, you know, the tenant can be given a notice of eviction right away, but they have to receive 48 hours notice prior to the first move out date. So this is known as the levy date, and that is when the sheriff or constable goes to the apartment, locks the doors, um, and, um, you know, removes the belongings from the apartment. Uh, and when the belongings are removed from the apartment, um, the landlord uh, can uh, store those belongings in the storage facility, but you know, the, the tenant would be responsible for those storage costs if they wish to remove their belongings. Um, okay, so this is just an example of what the, the notice of execution looks like. Um, so as you can see, you know, there's uh, there's the, the order, um, there is, it, it specifies that there is possession of the premises. Um, and, you know, uh, you should really just, you know, just familiarize yourself with these forms. Um, but these would be the kinds of forms that a tenant might receive um, in advance of uh, the, the lockout or the, the levy date. So now I'm going to talk about the stay of execution. Um, so this is a situation where, you know, even if the eviction judgment has been handed down, there may be situations where uh, a client or a tenant may request more time to stay in their apartment, more time to be able to move, and just to stay the execution for a little while longer. Um, so, you know, it, it can be sought in a new fault execution. And sometimes, you know, there may be um, depending on the judge's discretion, there may be limited stays in a fault or non-payment eviction. But if the and if the court doesn't grant that automatically, then the tenant can still file that motion um, to to stay. So um, you know, in in these situations, the court can grant six months in any case. And if somebody in the household is elderly or disabled, they can grant. 12, up to 12 months. Um, you know, usually what will happen is the judge will probably stay for maybe a month or two and then require that the tenant you know, conduct their due diligence in finding another place to stay. And then if they're not able to find some place, then you know they can come back and ask for another stay. So in the in these situations, you might want to advise somebody to you know, keep a list of the apartments that they've looked at, keep a record of the emails that they sent out, that kind of thing, which might help them in continuing to get us another stay if they're not able to find another place. Um, so this is an example of the 48-hour notice to vacate. It's a little bit different from the notice of execution, as, as we said before, because the notice of execution can be received, you know, after the, um, you know, as, sorry, as it can be received immediately. But the 48-hour notice to vacate is really important because this is what tells the tenant when they have to move um, and they have to get 48 hours notice in advance. Okay, so after the tenant receives a 48-hour notice to vacate, um, they can seek a stay of execution, uh, you know, and, you know, especially if they're not able to move out at that point. Um, other times, um, a lot of times tenants, you know, they, they may not even have known that there was a court case. They may have just defaulted, and this is kind of the first they're hearing of it. Um, in those situations, then they should file papers to try to get the default removed. 
ask for another hearing. Um, you know, and you know, in situations where the levy is is going forward, then the most important thing to advise tenants about is to get the most important belongings together, getting clothing, getting any kind of important documentation, um, and finding a place to stay. Uh, looking at shelter options or seeing if they can negotiate or if you would want to negotiate with a landlord to try to get them more time. Okay, so um, now I'm also going to talk about temporary restraining orders. So a temporary restraining order can be filed after receiving the 48 hour notice to vacate. So this would be, you know, a temporary restraining order to prevent the lockout or to prevent the levy from issuing. Um, but a temporary restraining order can also be filed in other situations, not necessarily just in um, situations where the eviction is issued. Um, so this would be situations where a landlord has failed to make repairs, um, you can issue a temporary, you can file for a temporary restraining order to order the landlord to make repairs, or if a tenant has been illegally locked out, if they, you know, the, if the locks have been changed, their belongings have been taken out of the apartment, a temporary restraining order might be filed to restore the tenant to possession. And, um, you know, the temporary restraining order is essentially a complaint. Um, you know, if you were assisting a client with a temporary restraining order, you, know, you just want to make sure that um, you have um, your proof ready. You have that um, the the demand. You know, and be clear about what exactly happened, what um, what the tenant is receiving. And um, a lot of times, again, you know, the, the clients that you might be serving um, through the LP um, have don't have a lot of funds to be able to pay those court costs. So an affidavit of indigency may also be filed to have these fees waived. Um, so because it's a TRO, and this is kind of like an emergency motion, and these move a little bit faster than the typical housing docket. Um, so, you know, it's important that the clients um, tries to serve the landlord as soon as possible so that that relief doesn't get challenged later. And, um, you know, if um, once, once that hearing is over, uh, making sure that a written copy of that decision um, gets, gets sent to you as well. And now I'm going to be passing it over to my colleague, Katie Remy. Um, she's going to tell you about rental assistance. Hey, everybody. Um, my name is Katie Lambin. I am a staff attorney on the COVID eviction legal help project, which means that I'm working in the housing unit, but specifically on COVID related cases. Um, before I jump in and start going through the slides, I did want to respond to Sharon's question about um, requiring a 30 day notice to quit for non payment. Um, there is currently a law in effect called the CARES Act. It's a federal law that applies to all covered federal properties, which is um, any really any property that's gotten federal funding, either through a mortgage, through like Fannie or Freddie, or through having Section 8 tenants or being um, a public housing development, those sorts of things. In that situation, even though the usual standard is a 14-day notice to quit for non-payment, um, there is currently a requirement that, that they be issuing 30-day notices to quit. And that is something that we're seeing um, landlords, especially smaller landlords, miss a lot if it's not something that they're familiar with and has been, in some cases, a really convenient um, way to get the case dismissed. Um, so that's something to be on the lookout for as well. Um, so before we get into sort of how to volunteer, I want to take a minute just to talk about rental assistance. Um, 
because we're still two years later in the middle of a pandemic, um, rental assistance has become easier to access than it was prior to the pandemic. Um, as of right now, it is available to most tenants in non-payment cases, as long as their income is below 80% of the area median income, um, which is significantly higher than previously. Previously, Massachusetts did have some limited funds available, but I believe that you had to be at or below 50% of AMI. So it's really opened it up to a lot more people, and it's also increased the amount of money that you can get. So for, emergency, for the Emergency Rental Assistance Program, which is called ERAP, um, as long as a person's reason for not being able to pay their rent is COVID related, the state of Massachusetts will pay up to 18 months of arrears and or a stipend for them with no dollar amount cap, which means that if a person's rent was $3,000 a month when they could afford it pre-March 2020, and they've now racked up, you know, $40,000 or $50,000 in arrears, then the state will pay that even though it's, it's, a much larger amount of money than they were ever willing to pay previously. Um, and if someone's non-payment started sort of later in the pandemic, they were able to pay rent for a while, but then stopped and they don't hit that 18 month cap just with arrears, the state will also pay a stipend in three month increments um, until that 18 month limit is reached. So that's something that's really helpful to know, especially if you're going into a mediation, for example, um, it's something that you can talk to landlords about um, trying to get them to accept rental assistance. Um, for non-COVID related um, non-payments, there is also RAFT, which is Massachusetts specific, and that will pay up to $10,000, sort of regardless of the reason for the non-payment. Um, so the other thing that you should know is that raft and emergency rental assistance can both be used so if someone say had some non-payment starting before the pandemic um, then they can use raft for that they can also use raft if they say meet hit their 18 month cap and are still not able to make their rental payments um, erap will also provide moving costs um, first and last those sorts of things so it's it's super helpful and has really saved a lot of people um, over the past few months. Um, an additional thing that you should know about rental assistance is that there is currently a law in effect in Massachusetts that provides that the court shall continue cases where there is a COVID-related non-payment and someone has applied for rental assistance. So um, if you are meeting with someone who has mediation that day, you can ask for a continuance. In most cases, landlords have been willing to agree because they really want the money. Um, and that gives some more time just for the rental assistance application to pend. I believe they're taking about six or seven weeks now. So sometimes um, they're, not, um, they're not approved by the time someone's in court. Um, you may also encounter someone who has trials scheduled or who has a, a motion hearing scheduled. Um, and in those cases as well, as long as their rental assistance application is still pending, they are entitled to a stay. It's not, it shouldn't really be something that the court has discretion to deny. Um, so that can also be really, really helpful for folks who maybe didn't know about rental assistance until they talked to the housing court mediator at their first court date or until they talked to somebody at lawyer for the day. So it's, it's super helpful. 
Um, I also want to briefly touch on the tenancy preservation program. This is a homelessness prevention program specifically for folks facing eviction related to behavior related to a disability. So Lynn went through a bunch of examples previously of reasons why someone's eviction might be disability related and reasons why they might be eligible for a reasonable accommodation. TPP can work with those tenants to help them communicate with doctors to get support letters, help them sort of identify, you know, whether the tenant themselves believes that the, I'm sorry, Lynn, oh, you're back, um, believes that the eviction is related to their disability. Um, so they can really get a lot of the legwork done, which is um, also really, really useful. Um, they have an office at the Brook Courthouse. Um, and the housing court mediators, the housing court specialists um, all have their contact information. So if you're meeting with a tenant and you think that TPP involvement would be useful to them, you can definitely let the housing court specialists know and they'll be able to get them in touch with the right people. So now that we have dropped all of this information on you very, very quickly, you are, believe it or not, prepared uh, really to assist um, in a variety of cases. Um, we sort of provide three different opportunities for volunteering. Lawyer for the day, which is assisting tenants who have court events that day um, in housing court. We'd have an answer and discovery clinic to help tenants file their answer and discovery requests and their jury demand before their deadline. And we also provide limited and full representation. Um, so I'm gonna go through each of those individually. Um, lawyer for the day, some of you may have at least been aware of lawyer for the day when it was in person at the courthouse. It is currently on Zoom, um, hosted by the court. So once upon a time, housing court would only really happen on one day a week. Now it happens every single day. So all of the Boston area legal aid organizations have gone together and divided up the days um, to make sure that somebody is available for lawyer for the day every day. So VLP hosts lawyer for the day um, on Tuesdays from the nine to noon session and for the afternoon one to four session. And also we do the Thursday afternoon session. So the way that lawyer for the day works currently is you log in to the same Zoom that everybody with a mediation scheduled for that day logs into. Um, you tell the housing court specialist that is trying to navigate everybody to the right spot that you're there for lawyer for the day. And we work out of our own breakout room. Um, we will provide obviously that login information to you before you arrive. Um, and we have largely been assisting people who have first tier events or mediation events um, scheduled because those are the ones currently that are happening remotely. We can also provide advice um, and sometimes further assistance to people with um, motion hearings or even trials. Um, but because those are in person, it's been a little bit more difficult to navigate. Um, but there are typically eight to 10 of these mediation events scheduled for every shift and then some other additional um, events scheduled. Keep in mind that that doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to be working with eight or 10 people. Um, unfortunately, tenants have to ask to speak to lawyer for the day. Um, it's not something that they're automatically shuffled into, even if they're not represented. So if nobody asks to get some assistance, then typically the housing specialists aren't going to be moving people into lawyer for the day. And there's a chance that you won't 
really work with anybody that day. At that point, we all sit in the Zoom anyway, just in case anybody shows up and you can have your camera off and your microphone off and be doing other work. Um, during lawyer for the day, you should know that a staff attorney and a paralegal will always be present to do intake, and then we will also be there to provide assistance. Um, so you are welcome for lawyer for the day to come and shadow, just to watch. You're welcome to come and give advice while we're in the room with you and able to jump in. And you can also go into those mediation sessions um, with tenants if you want. Um, I do want to say briefly that mediations are sort of led by a mediator from the housing court, but they can only give really, really limited advice to tenants. So in some situations, tenants will end up signing agreements that are not really in their best interest and that might have been not as good even as going to trial, um, just because they think, oh, well, if I get an additional month to move out, that's better than having to move out now, even though likely trial won't be scheduled before that move out date. So even if you feel like you are not 100% confident in all of the rules that we just threw at you, um, having an understanding of the way that the housing court process works currently and being able to sort of take a step back and help a tenant walk through what alternatives, what, what might happen if they don't reach an agreement um, can be really, really helpful to them and can help them from signing an agreement that would be worse for them than maybe not even reaching an agreement at all. Um, so keep that in mind and please come join us at Lawyer for the Day. Um, we provide four different levels of assistance there. You can just give advice to clients, especially if they have something scheduled in person and aren't really able to, you really aren't able to go in anyway. Um, you can help them to draft pleadings and fill out forms. So if someone comes and you see, for example, that, that their landlord um, didn't give them a 30-day notice to quit and they have a Section 8 voucher and it's a non-payment case and they only got a 14-day notice to quit, that's something that we have a draft motion to dismiss, uh, motion to dismiss ready to go. And you can assist them in drafting and filing that. And then you can also go into mediation with them and say, look, we have this motion to dismiss prepared. We will be filing it or we can agree to dismiss the case here and now. And that will at least, even if the landlord comes back and refiles, buy them a bunch of time. Um, in addition to that particular motion to dismiss, we have lots and lots of sample pleadings, blank motion, agreement forms, everything that you could really need to do um, to fill out basic pleadings or basic agreements with a tenant we have so we can share those um, when it comes up. Um, if you do fill something out with a tenant, please keep a copy of it. You're going to be doing it electronically, so you'll have a file saved anyway, and make sure that it gets shared with us um, after court is over. Um, I said you can provide assistance in mediation. We sort of already talked about that. And if someone has, like, most trials aren't being held remotely, so that's tough. But if somebody has a motion hearing, for example, that is being held remotely and they just need help, you know, showing evidence or sort of clarifying their position um, at this motion hearing, you can also step into that with them and provide limited assistance there. Um, before it's, it's really easy to sort of introduce yourself and just jump into helping somebody. But as Amelia mentioned at the very beginning, we always have to have VLP staff perform an eligibility screening before we can assist anybody. So when the housing specialists bring in a tenant, 
we're going to introduce ourselves, but then we're going to let the paralegal go through um, and make sure that they're eligible before we can provide any other assistance. And then at the end of the session, once the tenant is gone, we're going to ask you to fill out an assistance provided form, which looks like this, um, just so that even though probably the staff attorney, since we're on Zoom, was in the room with you and watching, so that we have all of the information um, about what you, what you did that day. Um, so in order to sign up for Housing Court Lawyer for the day, we have an online sign-up sheet that Amelia will email out. Um, we will provide the Zoom meeting link to you 24 to 48 hours in advance. Once you've done it once, it's the same every time, so you really won't need it after that first time, but we'll still send it to you. Um, and you can, when you sign up, let us know your comfort level and what you're wanting to do. So if you just want to shadow a couple of times before you do anything else, that's fine. If you want to let us know that you're ready and willing to go into a mediation with somebody, um, that's fine too. Just whatever you're comfortable with doing with the knowledge that there will always be a staff attorney present um, in case questions come up as you go. Um, this says that there's a walk-in clinic. There isn't currently um, in person, but it is something that might come back in the future. Um, you should also know that you can sign up for a Mass Courts attorney account. Um, most of you may already have it, but it makes it easier to access the notice to quit and the summons and complaint and any other documents that might have been filed in the case so that you can uh, review them. Okay, so in addition to LFD, we also do an answer and discovery virtual clinic. Um, I believe Rochelle went through sort of what the answer and discovery forms look like. There is now an online form and not just those PDFs that you can walk through a really guided and thorough um, answer form and, and get just a Word document at the end. It's perfectly completed and um, sort of took you through everything that you may have needed to address with the tenant. Um, this is something that happens typically before someone has had their first year mediation because the answer is due three business days before that first mediation. Um, so what will happen is you'll be placed into a breakout room with a client to go through this Massachusetts Defense for Eviction or MAID web form. Uh, it typically takes about two hours. There, again, will always be a VLP staff attorney in the wings that you can ping if you have questions as they come up, you know, during while you're filling it out, and who will also want to review the forms with you and the tenant afterwards, uh, just to make sure that everything is complete and ready to file. Um, and then once that case is complete, and the forms are complete, VLP will take those documents from you and will e-file them um, and make sure that service on the landlord happens. So to join us for Answer and Discovery Clinic, um, Amelia will again be sending out an email with online links. This is another thing where you can shadow or work in pairs. People really like to do that sometimes because somebody can be asking the questions and somebody else can be typing in the answers. However you are most comfortable um, volunteering is great. Um, this is something that is not a walk-in clinic. Everybody gets scheduled ahead of time. So when you are meeting with someone, you will have they will have been screened already. We'll know that they're eligible and we will have gotten a limited assistance retainer for them um, so that they know exactly that we are only assisting them with this and won't be assisting them with anything else. And you don't feel like you're on the hook to, to offer to do anymore. 
Um, again, we will provide the client's name and their documents and a link for the Zoom 24 to 48 hours before that clinic. So you'll have plenty of time to look at their summons and complaint and their notice, think about you know, any defenses that, that you might identify just looking at things. And then again, that made form will come up with a lot of them as well. And again, there will be an assistance provided form for you to fill out at the end um, so that we know, for example, if you gave advice or, or had a conversation with a client while a staff attorney wasn't present, what advice you gave so that, so that we can just have that in their file. And then finally, um, in addition to those two clinics, you can volunteer to do limited assistance representation or full rep cases outside of those clinics. So, um, a typical limited assistance representation case would be helping somebody draft a motion, for example, um, or even draft and argue a motion, whatever you, again, want to do and whatever you think the, the tenant needs. Um, housing court has had limited assistance representation for the last decade. Um, there is an online training that you would need to complete. Um, it's self-certifying, so once you have watched that training and read through the manual, you'll be able just to start filing LAR forms with the court um, to let them know that you're certified and to let them know that you might be representing this tenant, but only in a really limited capacity. Um, and then once you have worked with the tenant, you've drafted the thing, you've filed the thing with them, whatever it is you're going to do, in addition to filing this notice of limited representation, you're also going to file a notice of withdrawal to tell the court, look, this is what we said we would do, it's complete, we're not involved anymore. So you don't have to worry about the court thinking that you're going to be showing up to things in the future that you're not engaged to do. And it's also really clear to the tenant then that you won't be present. Um, and again, everything is virtual now, so you'll have PDFs of everything, but please keep copies and make sure that we have them to add into the tenant file. Okay, and I think everybody can be present now and we can go through some additional questions that might have come up. Um, so it looks like there's just one in the Q&A, which is, are many limited representation cases just written work? Um, and Mason says he's more comfortable with written advocacy. Would you like to answer, Katie? Yeah, but then Noah said that he would like to answer it, so I don't know what happened. Ah, oh, Maybe I think it was he's just that he was marking it to be answered. Yeah, that really depends on what you're comfortable with. If we've identified a client who we think could probably be okay, as long as we drafted something with arguing and, and something on their own. For example, um, I have a tenant who um, was employed very highly before the pandemic and was scheduled for trial last week in person. And we only drafted a motion for her that she then went in and argued for herself. That's pretty common. Um, so yeah, it's definitely something that, that you could do. Um, and I will just say um, that we did mention that we're having hosting a mediation training next week. That's kind of a follow-up to this training. Um, it's a great preparation for if you do want to join us at Lawyer for the Day, where you're, you'd largely be helping in mediations, or even if you're wanting to take on a case, um, because all eviction cases do go to mediation. Um, that's going to be a really great training. It's interactive. Um, we're actually going to give you a fact pattern um, and have people assigned to be landlords and tenants and actually 
actually do a mock mediation. Um, so it's a really great way to practice some negotiation skills, um, get a sense of um, what a housing court mediation is actually like. Um, and uh, our feedback in the past has been that it's a really helpful um, kind of primer um, to actually doing a real mediation. Um, so we hope you'll all join us for that. Um, and if you have any other questions that you um, didn't ask here, please feel free to email any of us. We're, we're happy to answer. Um, and again, you will be hearing from our pro bono manager, Amelia, um, with more details about how to sign up to volunteer. Um, and you can also direct any um, questions about volunteering to her as well. Um, so thank you everyone so much for being here with us today. Thank you all and quick thank you as well to our panelists again for speaking today and it's great to have you and thank you all as well for joining us and again we really do hope that you will join us for part two of this program on October 13th. You will find a link so that you can register for the event for the program um, inside of the chat. And if you have any questions feel free to email any of the panelists or if you have any BBA specific questions feel free to email me as well at nwilliams at bostonbar.org and with that being said have a great afternoon everyone. Hey.